0: These are times of greatest abundance and wealth, but also times of rising inequality and scarcity. These are times of the greatest technological growth, when humanity is entering a new space age. But these are also times in which our entire economic and political systems have been laid low by the simplest of all life forms. Depending on who you are and where you are located, these could be the best of times, Or, these could be the worst of times. One thing, however, is very clear. These are intensely geopolitical times. And the geopolitics of these times itself is as complex and multi-layered as our age of paradox itself. In the Geopolitics 3.0 podcast, we will investigate the trajectories of global politics on a weekly basis examining trends in international relations, mapping out these dynamics of convergences and divergences across various domains of geopolitics, including geoeconomics, geostrategy and geotechnology, in a world where the past and the future exist simultaneously in the present, where they are often at conflict with one another. Geopolitics emerged as a discipline in the 19th century during an age of global imperialism. Its primary concern then was to deal with the possibilities and problems of territorial expansion of empires. The second age of geopolitics was the era of the Cold War in which practitioners of the art of geopolitics had to deal with the unique challenges of two competing ideological and economic systems which wielded global power. The end of the Cold War it was believed to be the beginning of a new age in which the liberal international order would reign supreme over the world. Instead, in the third decade of the 21st century, we have an international system that is as fragmented as ever in various domains. In the geostrategic domain, where we have geostrategic competition among major powers to increase their spheres of influence in multiple theatres, where we have actual ongoing wars or threats of future wars. But also, at the same time, there is intense global collaboration most evident in discussions around climate change, especially in terms of the search for scientific solutions for moving to a post-carbon economy. Yet, at times, competition and collaboration, convergences and fragmentations coexist, as in the geoeconomic domain, where there are deep interlinkages and codependencies, most evident in networks of global supply chains, even as different nations are creating exclusive economic blocks. So the simplistic expansionist logic of geopolitics 1.0 or even the redundant ideological logic of geopolitics 2.0 isn't enough to understand, let alone explain the world of today in which legacies of the past coexist with the possibilities of tomorrow. For this, we need a geopolitics 3.0. And that is what we will explore in this podcast series. In this era of Geopolitics 3.0, we have to look at Geopolitics more three-dimensionally, which means we have to be more aware of convergences and divergences, not only across domains of geoeconomics, geostrategy, and geotechnology, but also investigate dependencies across space. And this will help us develop a more coherent and complete picture of the world. To demonstrate this, take the case of international commerce. Now, we know that if the internet is the nervous system of our globalized world, its arteries are trade routes, especially shipping lanes or sea lanes of communication, as they are called. In this system, the key interface between industry and commerce are shipping ports. Shipping ports themselves are located at specific regions or various economies, so at even more localized scales within countries but their operations can have an effect on the entire system of global trade. Now, during the recent pandemic-induced shocks to global supply chains, there were major disruptions followed by critical bottlenecks which have severely affected the operations of major transit ports. Last month, we saw this again in China's key export hub of Shenzhen, also called the Silicon Valley of Hardware. Now, recently, several dock workers were confirmed with COVID during a breakout in the Guangdong province where Shenzhen is located. And a major operator of terminals had to partially close operations for a few days. This was the Yantian Terminal, which is the world's fourth largest terminal port. And the outage here is straining and already shaky global supply chain. Now, Bloomberg reports that port operations and surrounding amenities. Are prohibited while ships remain docked at Yantian, waiting to pick up their cargo. Containers for export are piled high and are now extending to yards stretched out to maximum capacity, with delays lasting up to 14 days. Now, global container transportation prices have already risen to new highs in recent months. Even before the disruption at Yantian, global supply chains were battling to clear container backlogs. As a result, if you remember of the Suez Canal's week-long closure in March, but also due to other closures, especially on the U.S. Pacific coast. Now, the Yantian facility is experiencing difficulties as a result of local authorities' efforts to disinfect and enforce quarantine restrictions, which has resulted in various labour shortages. So we see how even decisions taken by local provincial governments can have global implications because of these linkages, in supply chains across space and across scale, right from regions to the global scale. As a consequence of all this, it is likely that already high global shipping costs will rise still further and the effects will last for months. There are several things to draw out from this discussion. First, from a global perspective, we see how despite all the talk of competition and fragmentation, in global geoeconomics, how interlinked and mutually dependent the entire global economy still remains. Across domains and across regions and across scales, these are deep interlinkages which cannot be ignored or wished away just by political rhetoric. Secondly, for China itself, we see that China has not been as immune to the shock of the pandemic as it might be portrayed in media outside China. We see lingering effects of the pandemic till today, and another point which I want to draw out here is to connect our conversation with the problem of labor shortages that we discussed. While, the, while immediately the labor shortages now at this port, at this terminal, are a consequence of lockdown restrictions, but this serves as a gateway or a connection point to which we can transition to the next section of our conversation before we begin and bring everything together. Now, recently, there has been a lot of talk about China's impending demographic crisis. Now, are various labour shortages and rising wages a premonition of a crisis to come? Let's just look into that. So China's policymakers definitely think so. After decades of persuading Chinese citizens that lowering the birth rate was vital, China's officials now acknowledge that the strategy was either unneeded or a mistake. Concerned about the prospects of an ageing population and dwindling workforce, China's officials have eased limitations on family sizes in recent years. The one-child rule was revised by the central government in 2015, allowing all married couples to have two children. It was stated last week that they could now have three if they wished. So far, policy reversals have had little effect in halting the decline in birth rates. Because the perceived costs of raising children is too great and many Chinese families choose to have only one kid. And this will likely continue in the future, especially because many women are also opting out of having children, especially due to systemic disparities at home and at work, making pregnancy and child-rearing an unattractive option. This, we know, is a widespread trend in many societies. Now, what are the implications of this? So, according to a report in East Asia Forum, in 2020, last year, China had 12 million newborns down from 14.65 million in 2019, the lowest number in six decades, and this is continuously declining. So China's population is predicted to begin dropping by the end of the decade. With a fertility rate of 1.3, it is already one of the lowest in the world. Its working age population reached an all-time high a decade ago, and since then, the working age population has been declining with every generation. Now, some economists warn that if China's population begins to drop before reaching high-income status, the country's economy may become trapped in a middle-income trap. Others worry that China's ageing population will put a big strain on younger generations whose numbers are continuously falling relative to older people in the country. And the country's finances will be strained in the future. Now, international relations experts speculate on the implications of China's population loss, that this might imperil the country's superpower ambitions and potential, especially to power balance with the United States, which is better positioned to employ immigration to compensate for its own low birth. Now, this discussion is important to bring in another element into our framework. We were talking about three dimensions. We add another important element, that is time, so perhaps we need four-dimensional geopolitics, but importantly, when we make geopolitical analysis, it is important not only to move down and up scales and track interdependencies across space, across different regions of the world, but also to move forward and backwards in time, to trace out the implications of trajectories, again in various domains, and demographics is a critical one here, so this perspective is important. And regarding demographics itself, there are other perspectives which we also need to take into account that advances in technology again in the future might improve productivity which will counter the negative effects of this so-called demographic decline. So that is a counter trajectory leading into a possible future of perhaps brightness and hope and another trajectory of demographic decline which is perhaps leading to a doom and gloom scenario. But importantly, it is important to factor in all these trajectories into developing a geopolitical analysis. And this is perhaps what China's planners are also looking at. And demographics are just one factor in long-term economic growth, which depends on what are called the three Ps, population, participation, and productivity. So if you see a long-term decline in one aspect, perhaps focusing on others can also be a way solve that potential future problem. So moving on, and by the way, before I move on to the next segment, there has also been a COVID-19 outbreak in a Taiwanese factory last week, in various Taiwanese factories, in fact, which is threatening a new disruption in the widespread semiconductor shortage, which is already becoming something of a crisis leading to rising prices of electronics worldwide. So one big focus for major economies, including the United States, is to diversify these high-tech supply chains, especially for semiconductors. And Taiwan has been a big focus area for this. I will cover this in more detail in my next episode, but it's just important to point out how the COVID pandemic is affecting and creating these disruptions across scales and ultimately in the entire global system. While divergences and disruptions are one defining aspect of our age of paradoxes, Geopolitics 3.0 is also about seeking continuities with the past, which is what Joseph Biden defines, in a sense, his presidency of the United States as representing. So one of these continuities is USA's commitment to the liberal international order, which some might see as a relic of the past, but which Biden will attempt to reinvigorate in his first foreign trip as president to attend a series of summits in Europe. The goals of this trip, Biden wrote in an op-ed, are to reinforce older certainties in a world of uncertainty. He wrote in an op-ed in the Washington Post. In this moment of global uncertainty, as the world still grapples with a once in a century pandemic, The Strip is about realizing America's renewed commitment to our allies and partners, and demonstrating the capacity of democracies to meet the challenges, deter the threats of this new age. Well, once in a century, hopefully. But Biden will be meeting most of Europe's democratically elected leaders, including President Erdogan of Turkey. And more interestingly, he will also be meeting Russian President Vladimir Putin, on June 16th in Geneva. This is something we will get to in a moment. Now, returning to the overarching goal of this visit, the fundamental question for the United States and its democratic allies, according to Biden, is whether they and the liberal system they profess to protect can show its capacity against modern day threats and enemies, by which he specifically means China and Russia. So the underlying theme of an impending new Cold War still exists in US foreign policy. And this is a continuation from the previous administration. Now competition in the geoeconomic realm or domain launched by Donald Trump's trade war is still going on, with the new administration continuing many of the previous trade restrictions which were aimed at China while also actively developing new strategies for new arenas, for new domains of competition. This is something which the so-called Endless Frontier Act, which we will also discuss in the next episode, is trying to address. So this is meant to prepare USA to take on this challenge, represented by China especially in these various domains of geotechnology, geoeconomics, geostrategy, and geostrategy especially of outer space. So we will discuss this in detail along with other attempts of the United States to try and diversify supply chains in semiconductors and also in rare earth minerals. So that is a subject for the next episode. But right now, competition with Russia as well, interestingly, extends to multiple domains. And since Biden is meeting Putin, let us see what the implications of Russia and USA competition are. So Russia and USA are often at odds in different zones where we see heated conflicts such as Syria and North Africa. So that is the traditional geostrategic aspect of the Russia-USA rivalry, which is still well and truly alive. But this competition has also taken up an explicitly geotechnological dimension or moved to that realm or domain, as we saw recently in some cyber attacks on USA's infrastructure, which they blame on Russian hackers. And of course, accusations fly in all directions, with USA itself being accused of fueling instability. Now, President Putin recently claimed that USA is using its currency as a political and economic weapon, which is damaging the dollar as a reserve currency. Now, this was on Friday, less than two weeks before his scheduled face-to-face meeting with the US president. So Russia has in fact been working towards removing the dollar from its financial system, So this is a divergence, a possible attempt at a divergence, although it's a difficult thing to do. Now, Russia's wealth fund, which receives inflows from sales of hydrocarbons in the international market, the greatest source of its wealth, is looking to reduce its dollar assets to zero and increase its holdings of euros, yuan and gold. Also, Russia's share of exports, which were previously denominated in US dollars, fell below 50% for the first time ever, aided by the oil major, Rosnoft, switching crude oil export contracts to euros. And most trade with China as well as now conducted in euros. So the emergence of China as this global growth engine, combined with the mistrust and dissatisfaction of the privileges the United States claims and demands, in fact, from the dollar standing, a role putting pressure on the existing structure of global trade. Think of how geoeconomics is used as a tool, as a tool or an offensive tool, especially in terms of sanctions regimes, and the use of dollar in that respect becomes a weapon that the United States deploys. Now, interestingly, the European Union's susceptibility to American penalties, the sanctions that leverage this common currency use, It has become a major factor in why the European Union itself is looking to strengthen the role of the euro in the international trade market as an alternate currency. And of course, there are also self-serving power dynamics at play here. So perhaps for these overlapping complexities and to avoid getting into zero-sum games internationally with respect to relations with China and Russia especially, USA's European allies are much less enthusiastic about Biden's visit, although there are the usual public statements about the old traditional relationship. So for Europe, the roadmap for the future as I've discussed before is to chart out a more independent foreign policy. This again primarily focuses on geoeconomics. Recently, the European Union too has been engaging with a lot of countries, following talks with South Korea, Canada, Japan, Mercosur, which is South America's common market, And Australia and the majority of ASEAN countries, Europe's next stop for trade talks is India. Now, while not much is expected to come out of EU-India trade talks in the near future, the fact that these channels remain open shows how much of a flux the international order is still in and how Europe is trying to create a geoeconomic order for itself, based and centred on itself during this era of flux. Now, no country wants to bandwagon with one side or another, especially no major power, which means that we will not see the kind of entrenchment of blocks that we saw in the Cold War. I know a lot of people are talking about the new Cold War, but the new Cold War will be a new kind of Cold War, if there ever is one. And these convergences in various domains, despite the divergences, will prevent the absolute fragmentation of the world system, What we are more likely to see is divergences in some domains, while continuities persist in others, and perhaps even new convergences develop in still other domains. So in this last section, we will briefly engage with Southeast Asia to see how nations simultaneously negotiate these divergences while seeking to build on convergences. Now take for instance that broadly speaking, ACR nations support what is also the quad position of the free and open Indo Pacific? But while USA chooses to enforce this aggressively, for example, by sailing its fleets through what China claims as its waters, ACR nations, much like Japan also does, prefer engagement with China while also simultaneously hedging against potential future threats. So this week, even as Biden is visiting Europe, China is hosting 10 foreign ministers from ASEAN countries to mark the 30-year anniversary of relations and also focus on combating COVID-19, promoting economic recovery, and better dovetailing strategic plans. The complexity of how ASEAN nations manage ties with China is best exemplified by Indonesia. So in late 2019, early 2020, China and Indonesia were seen as edging closer to armed warfare. To some observers, this was as Indonesia was accusing China's coast guard and fishing militia of repeated incursions into its exclusive economic zone in the Natuna Sea, a Pacific Ocean region between uh, Borneo and Sumatra, which Beijing considers a traditional Chinese fishing location. In response, Jakarta had dispatched warships and F-16 fighter jets, as well as requesting that Indonesian fishing vessels relocate to the area to establish their presence. Now, in the end, China decided to retreat, though there are still accusations of sporadic incursions by China in the region. Now, Indonesia is one nation which USA is keen to get on board, its more hardline interpretation of the Quad as an Asian NATO. But despite its disputes and some rising public sentiment against China, Indonesia continues to maintain a very non-aligned posture, fittingly as it was one of the paragons of the non-aligned movement during the early years of the Cold War, alongside India and Yugoslavia. But again, this displays our core theme of convergences and divergences. Now, Indonesia is one of China's biggest trading partners and vice versa. So again, we see geoeconomic convergence despite geostrategic divergence even possibilities of conflict over disputed territories. Now, geostrategy is always the enduring characteristic of geopolitics 3.0, but other factors can influence and soften the approach of nations and make them rethink their priorities. And recently, China's vaccine diplomacy has played a role in softening the relationship between Indonesia and China after the disputes of last year. But geostrategy is the hard base of geopolitics and memory still remains. And a rising number of Indonesians do see China as a revisionist power that is bent on territorial conquest. So that remains the hard truth. Ultimately, perception matters in international relations. Most nations do see a tendency of hardline revisionism in China especially with the recent over-aggressive 4 approach of its diplomats. And USA too is perceived to be unstable in terms of internal politics, especially by the European Union and untrustworthy as an ally internationally. With a country like Russia, on the other hand, you get what you see. This is why Russia is able to maintain long-term alliances with very different countries ranging from Southeast Asia to the Middle East. But with Russia's own attempts at revisionism in East Europe, that too might change. So, these are all emerging trends which I will continue to explore in weekly episodes of the Geopolitics 3.0 podcast. Now, in this analysis, I hope you got an overall view of what I mean by Geopolitics 3.0, these interactions, convergences, and divergences across various domains. Now in the previous iteration on my YouTube channel, I called the two preliminary seasons of this podcast the Age of Paradox podcast. So I came up with that name quite ironically as I was just finishing a draft in my diary and had no inclination of turning this into a podcast series, perhaps only an essay or one presentation. But I was writing that draft from a bedroom on the first floor of my parents' house in the foothills of the Himalayas from where I was watching and perhaps passing judgment on the world. A world which itself was and is still witnessing and experiencing the overlapping paradoxes of digital connectivity on the one hand and pandemic-induced isolation on the other. I had opened the first episode by saying that future historians might call our times the age of paradox. Well, one of these paradoxes might be that those historians might not even be human, but AI, which is getting increasingly good at writing just like humans. So this episode was written, performed, and produced completely by AI. (laughs) I'm just kidding. If you found this useful, please consider joining channel membership to support this endeavor, this human endeavor, and for other perks as well, such as access to a transcript of every episode with references, resources for further reading, through my new newsletter which I will make exclusive for this podcast and also for an opportunity to contribute analysis to future episodes so you can use that newsletter to pass on analysis to me whether in writing through comments or maybe even audio clips and I will add it, consider adding it to future episodes of the channel of course if you are a member so that is going to be an exclusive perk So thank you for listening. Do tune in for the next episode. I will be releasing new episodes every Thursday. And I hope you enjoyed this first episode of the Geopolitics 3.0 podcast.